you would open your Bibles to 1 John again, 1 John chapter 4. Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you've heard that it should come and even now already is it in the world. You are of God, little children. And have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. When the Apostle Paul was traveling on his missionary journeys, he met with uh, both wide acceptance and violent rejection. For example, in Acts 17, when he gets to the city of Thessalonica, he went into the synagogues and he reasoned with them about Christ, about the Messiah. And it says some of them were persuaded and joined him, but others were moved with jealousy and complained that the gospel was turning the world upside down. When he entered into a city, Paul didn't know whether he would be celebrated, incarcerated, or both because he was mocked and stoned and whipped, and then other times he was received, obeyed, and protected. The very most noble response that Paul ever received came from this little city he visited immediately after Thessalonica. Here's what Acts 17, 10, and 11 says. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived... They went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were no more noble. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. In a word, the people of Berea practiced discernment. They did not automatically reject the teaching of Paul, but they didn't swallow it right away either. They listened with a ready mind and they diligently scoured the word of God as the means to either confirm or deny the truth of the message. You can't ask for a better response than that. The scriptures call it noble. It is what God demands of all his people. The original audience for John's letter, they were surrounded by false teachers, which had actually arisen up within the congregations that he's writing to, and they were proclaiming some strange doctrines about Jesus. 
They didn't actually deny that Jesus is God. What they denied was that he could have really come in the flesh. In their view, and this is odd to us, but in their view, all physical matter is evil. And so if Jesus is perfect, he couldn't have been physical. He couldn't have been real flesh and blood. We'll see John address that directly down in verses 2 and 3 of our text when he affirms that those who refuse to teach that Jesus has come in the flesh, they are not of God. But where did they get such strange ideas? It clearly, it didn't come from any written revelation of God. It didn't come from what the apostles taught. We've talked before about these folks and we've, we noted that they were called Gnostics from the, the word that means to know. They claimed that they had this special knowledge that had been given to them so that they had this spiritual insight that was beyond the written word and beyond the teaching of the apostles. John was concerned that their, their influence had shaken the faith of some of the early believers who, who naturally started thinking like, well, if, if they know more, why don't I know more? If they know more, if God's showing more to them and I'm not getting it, maybe I'm not saved at all. Maybe I don't even know Jesus. And so John writes this letter to assure them, no, you can know. But now he also warns them about easily accepting every teacher who claims to have some kind of spiritual knowledge. John demands in this text that believers practice spiritual discernment, identifying false teachers and and evaluating what they have to say about Jesus and how their teaching compares to the apostolic witness. Listen, this is, a, this is something he demands of all believers. You do not get to take that job and delegate it to someone else, to, to delegate it and pass it off to the, the pastor or elders of a church and rely on them to keep things straight because we'll see in a moment that it's, it's actually the pastors and elders that, that might be the very false teachers that you need to identify. So John begins by saying, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. And he ends by saying in verse 6, this is how you'll know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This text calls for every believer to practice spiritual discernment so that they might reject what is false and uphold what is good. So first, I want you to see the commands to practice discernment. Commands, plural. Look at verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. In verse 1, John gives us two important commands and one big concern. The first command, after again calling his readers beloved or dearly loved, John says, do not believe every spirit. Now, for the sake of clarity, you need to understand 
that John is not expecting that you or I or any of his readers are going to have a spirit, some ghostly apparition float into our bedroom at night and, and whisper mysterious messages in our ears. That's not what he's talking about here. To grasp what he's saying when he says, don't believe every spirit, you have to keep it in the sense that he intends it and he's dealing with those false teachers, or he says at the end of verse 1, false prophets. A prophet is simply someone who says that they've received spiritual communication from God that is to be passed on to others. If that is a a true prophet of God, an inspired prophet of God, where does he get that message from? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God. And so John is simply contrasting the true messengers of God who've received a message from the Holy Spirit with the false prophets who are plaguing his readers, which has caused him to write this letter. In John's view, behind every statement is a spirit, but it's not necessarily the spirit of God. False prophets often come with messages from their own minds but even those things have a spiritual source. In verse 3, he's going to call it the spirit of Antichrist. In verse 6, he labels it the spirit of error. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1 calls this stuff, he says it's the doctrines of devils, right? The doctrine of demons. So in essence, when someone comes claiming that they have received a supernatural message, They may, in fact, have a supernatural message. It just might not be from the supernatural source that they're claiming it to be. This first command is a command for Christians to be discerning. Do not believe every spirit. Sometimes it's okay when there's something presented that is is new to you or that you're unsure about to respond with. I'm not sure about that. Although John's not saying automatically reject every spirit, is he? He's calling to be discerning. And how do we be discerning? Well, listen to his second important command. He says, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. The word try there means to test. So John says, don't believe everything you hear. But he doesn't say, well, automatically reject every new thing you hear. As one preacher, Alistair Begg, says about this verse, there is a call for a balance between superstition on one hand and suspicion on the other. I know you've, you've experienced, you've seen that imbalance. You've seen folks who, on one hand, if, if they're taught something that they don't already believe, they react with suspicion and immediately reject it because we can't be wrong. We already know everything. On the other hand, you have people who will hear some person say, God told me, and immediately that person becomes this absolute authority and they will believe whatever he says. John is saying here that we have to take that message and put it to the test to determine whether or not what we're hearing is the truth from God. This is especially difficult in our day of relativism where we're told that 
Truth is fluid. There's no absolute truth. The very idea of practicing discernment or being, another word would be being discriminating, is thought to be backward and hateful to the point where that word discriminate actually sounds like a a bad word. It simply means to, to note a difference between two things, to make a distinction between two things. If I could say it this way, racial discrimination is a problem, but the lack of spiritual discrimination is a bigger problem. There is a modern day application to this truth in which the Lord's churches are plagued with a lack of discernment among congregations. Because unfortunately, Instead of applying John's test here, what we do is we say, well, I like the guy who's bringing the message, so I believe it. Or he's, he's standing behind the pulpit and he's wearing a tie, so he must be an automatically trusted source. So I'm going to tell you something that's happening right now that's sort of all the buzz among our kinds of Baptist churches of which you are most likely blissfully unaware. And I've sort of agonized whether or not to bring it up because the people in question, thankfully, have little to no influence over this congregation at all. But I don't, I don't want to ignore it because I'll just point out again, it amazes me how when you preach through books using exposition that... It brings you to the right text at the right time, almost like God knows what he's doing. So there is a, a, a pastor, a very popular man, a genuinely nice guy. I've preached at Bible conferences with him several times, who has frankly gone off the rails theologically. It's actually been a very slow process. There's, there's a small handful of folks who started raising our eyebrows over the years when he would preach and say, you know, God gave me this message in a dream. But to my surprise, church after church would hear that and just smile and, and nod or even amen as he said that. And then as he would preach, there would be little statements or there would be positions he would take about things unrelated to the text. So some examples, he's called the Baptist bride the queen of heaven and says that other saved folks in heaven are going to be bowing down to the, the queen of heaven in eternity. He advises folks to pray for the dead, specifically like you should pray for God to raise Jeremiah up out of the pit. You should pray for the salvation of Pontius Pilate. He sees Old Testament types of Donald Trump to the point where he actually has pointed out how Donald Trump has fulfilled specific Old Testament passages. He's preached that the the physical death of Jesus did not save us and in the same message said that the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is actually the second birth of Jesus. He published a devotion online which hypothesized that our world right now is not the first creation of God, that it's probably like the, the fourth or fifth creation of God and there will be more creations of God later as he recreates worlds in order to provide children for the queen of heaven. If that sounds bizarre, it's because it's bizarre. 
It wasn't until he published an article in a popular Baptist newspaper, which they had no business printing, entitled, What Do Dreams Mean?, where he gives six methods of interpreting your dreams, and ironically quoted verse one of our text in the process. It wasn't until then that more than a small handful of folks finally started to raise the red flag. My question would be, why, why, does it, why would it take so long? And the answer seems clear to me. It is a general lack of discernment among congregations that are listening to preaching. Part of the problem is a willingness on the part of churches to listen to message after message that is not tied to the text of scripture that's being read. When you start hearing doctrines proclaimed, even when they are in fact true, but they're done in a way that doesn't show how it's based on scriptural authority, it's a clear meaning of scripture, without pointing to the text and saying, look, you, you see it right there, then it's not long before you get used to truth without text. And then untruth without text doesn't seem all that strange to you. Understand, the problem in the Apostle John's day was not that some heretical outsiders had started infiltrating churches. It was also that within assemblies, false teaching had arose and so he issues these two important commands don't believe every spirit and test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God last part of verse four verse one he he describes the big concern he says because many false prophets are gone out into the world false prophets have always been a problem everywhere that the truth of God has been graciously extended to mankind, Satan has been present with his version of the truth to, to muddle that message. When Moses went to Egypt with the message of God, Pharaoh had his own magicians who would mimic Moses. When God sent Elijah to declare his word to the nation of Israel, he faced Hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal who were drawing people away to fables. In Jeremiah's day, he was sent by God with the message to the nation of Judah that you've, you've sinned, judgment is coming, God is going to deliver you into the hands of the enemies. And in that case, Jeremiah faced false prophets who looked at the people and said, no, don't believe Jeremiah. Their message was peace, Peace, right? God, God's happy with us. God will protect us. Ask yourself this question. Why would anybody ever believe a false prophet? I can tell you, I think the answer is that the message of false prophets are crafted to be more appealing than the true message from God. False messengers are believed because false messages are more selfishly gratifying to us. Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 30, verse 10, when he accused of people, he accused the people that they say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Prophesy to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. 
This is a problem for us still today. John's telling us this is not limited to the Old Testament prophets. He says many false prophets are gone out into the world. The Apostle Peter says this is a continuing problem. In 2 Peter 2, he he says that false teachers among you have privately brought in damnable heresies with feigned or fabricated words to make merchandise of you. They're going to exploit you with falsehoods. The general tenor of John and Peter is that the problem is not an out there problem. The problem is an in here problem. And if John and Peter aren't enough authority, then maybe you remember the Apostle Paul is a, is a third witness to the same truth. In Acts chapter 20, when he gathered the elders of Ephesus, he warned them to take heed to themselves. And here's what he said in Acts 20, 29, and 30. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves, men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Right? His description is, I know once I'm gone, there's going to be wolves descending from the outside. And some of you are going to be false teachers rising up from the inside to draw people away. And again, why would anybody believe them? It's not because they bring an unappealing message. I mean, what could be more seductive than to stand in front of a Baptist church and tell them that every political opinion you have finds its fulfillment because it's there in the Old Testament and you are the Baptist bride, queen of heaven, and people are going to bow down to you in eternity. This is why John issues these two important commands for discernment. Listen, your your parents doubtlessly taught you as a kid, don't believe everything you hear. We could use a good dose of that in our churches today. Don't believe everything you hear. Even if the person saying it is someone that you really like, don't believe everything you hear. Even if it sounds like something that you want to believe, don't believe everything you hear just because it's said from behind this pulpit. You can't decide to believe a message based on the messenger. You have to be discerning about the message itself. And so to fit the the biblical message of John and, and Peter and Paul, this is not just something to be concerned about out there in other places. You need to be discerning right here, right now. This very moment, there is no time like Sunday morning worship hour for a church to be built up with the word of God and there is no more dangerous time when you can be torn down by false doctrine. I can promise you, nobody's going to come up here and and get up to teach with a, a name tag that says, hello, my name is false prophet. I'm not going to get into the pulpit and say, good morning, everybody. I've got some fresh heresy for you today. Listen up close. But I am not immune from the potential for error. I could easily go off the theological rails myself. And, And which of you is going to stop it? John's answer is all of you. All of you have to stop it. 
You must be biblically literate enough and discerning enough to identify false teaching if it comes and be courageous enough to call it out whenever it does. Thankfully, John not only issues this command, these commands to practice discernment, but when he says test the spirits, whether they are of God, he actually hands us the test to apply. Notice the standard to apply in discernment, verses two and three. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. It is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. The standard to apply in discernment might be called the Jesus test. What do they believe and say about Jesus? If we, if we picture all doctrinal truth, like it's this big circle, all, the, all truth fits in there, a big, a big wheel, right? Well, there's several spokes on that wheel, right? There's, there's doctrinal areas like ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, or eschatology, the doctrine of end times, or soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and on it goes. Let me add, it's, it's perfectly fine if those don't become part of your regular vocabulary. But if you're picturing all those areas of study as, as spokes on a wheel, here's what you have to understand. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the hub to which all truth connects. There is no truth worth knowing except that by knowing it, you know Jesus better. False teachers very often can be identified because Jesus, the truth about Jesus, is not at the center of their theological thought. Now, they might get caught up in one of those areas. They could get caught up in ecclesiology, right? The doctrine of the church and recognize that, well, the church is the bride, but ignore the fact that it's the blood-bought bride of Christ. This is about him. They can get focused on eschatology and start setting dates for the end time, but not have their primary focus be that the return of Jesus in glory is the ultimate truth of end time doctrine. Or they can emphasize soteriology, the the way of salvation, and say, well, this is what Jesus has done for you, but not emphasize it like this is what Jesus has done for you. If you want to be discerning about false teaching and you're commanded to do this, then start by applying the Jesus test. Is the focus of that man's message to bring glory and honor to Jesus? Does the content of his message consistently point to the biblically established truths about Jesus? Now, I'm going to tell you how I see verses 2 and 3. And you're going to have to be discerning enough to determine whether or not it's right. Because while the focus and truths about Jesus are a good general standard for identifying false teaching, I don't think that John here is giving this as a comprehensive test. And let me explain why. Imagine for a moment 
that up here in the front row, there's a, a, a Roman Catholic and a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon. I know that sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? Although note, even in hypothetical situations, there's no Baptist sitting on the front row. If I ask the question that John applies here in verse 2 as a, a test for them, and I say, well, do you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? <clears throat> what does a Roman Catholic say? Yes. Jesus is God himself, born in the flesh. Of course, Mary is also divine. You can pray to saints. But yeah, I confess that Jesus Christ is born in the flesh. What does a Jehovah's Witness say? Yes. Jesus was created by God, and he's the very bestest angel there ever was. But yes, I can confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. What a Mormon would say is, of course, Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of the heavenly father and the heavenly mother in this creation. And he grew up to become God and was born in the flesh. So yes, I confess that Jesus Christ is born in the flesh. You see the problem? If this is a comprehensive test, if that's what, what's intended here, then there are a lot of folks who would affirm that statement, but they're still theological counterfeits. If you remember, in the Gospels, there were even demons that recognized that Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. So I don't understand verses 2 and 3 is like, well, there's this single question that is a comprehensive test that John is giving. It is absolutely the place to start. But there's also an understanding that we need to be discerning about what they mean when they say Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, the reason why John has just given this question in his letter is, remember, context matters. John is writing to churches who are being influenced by those false Gnostic teachers who were saying Jesus is God, but he couldn't possibly have come in the flesh because all physical things are evil. So John's writing specifically about that heresy that was happening in his time. And he says, if they reject the simple truth that Jesus is Christ, that he's the Messiah and he's come in the flesh, be discerning enough to reject them. That is not of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist, he says in verse 3. You know that the Antichrist is coming, but remember the spirit which supports such denials of Christ is already at work in the world. So more than just a single test, John is telling them first to be discerning about the teacher's view about Jesus and second to evaluate that view by the true teachers, the inspired apostles and what they've taught. That's the greater context of John's letter. Uh, you know, the apostles of Jesus have, have been saying this, and John's been writing this in his letter since the first verse of chapter 1. He's been addressing that very issue. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 1? I've seen him. I've heard him. I've touched him. Right? Don't tell me he hasn't come in the flesh. And if you believe what the apostles say about Jesus, then you can have, he says, fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So that's my understanding of verses 2 and 3. This is a specific question for his specific audience. But the basic principle 
for us to test the spirits, to evaluate the messages we hear based on whether or not that message parallels the truths about Jesus that were taught by the apostles. We'll pick that thought up again in a minute here. But right now, we've seen the commands to practice discernment, the standard to apply in discernment. Third, look at the power enabling discernment. Because let's face it, if it was just up to me to discern all things true and all things false, I ain't that wise, right? I don't have that ability. So look at verses four through six. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If verses one through three essentially represent this looming threat of false doctrine, verses four through six is the glorious success story. John presents this success story from three clear perspectives and you can see those in the first word of each one of those verses four through six you they we okay first off you in verse four is the plural ye right it means y'all john is writing to this group of believers and he's identifying them by that word y'all right ye in contrast to the false teachers who are trying to influence him, and in contrast to himself and the apostles who are teaching truth. You see, they're either going to believe John and the apostles, or they're going to believe the false prophets who are teaching error, but they're not going to believe both. And so John sees their success. He says, you are of God, little children. You have overcome them because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. Every time I read that verse, I think of this dear saint who was a wonderful influence on my life and she quoted this verse pretty frequently. It gave her encouragement in times of trial in in this kind of bring it on spirit. Because she understood that the spirit of God within her was far more than Satan could handle. John is simply telling the readers that their success doesn't lie in human wisdom or in their own ability to be discerning. Their success is based on the fact that they are of God and it's the spirit of God within them that is more powerful than the spirit of error outside of them. That's why he says, you have overcome them. So who's them? Look at verse five. They, in verse five, is talking about the false teachers because they're of the world and they speak worldly things and the world hears them. It might be that John keeps using the the word world here to sort of indicate the false teachers seem to have a big audience. I mean, when you tell spiritually undiscerning people what they want to hear, you're not going to have a problem gathering an audience. 
But when you tell people that the world does not revolve around you because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's the one who's at the center of all things, and there's no glory for you, only for him, that's a tough sell. In fact, John's going to say in verse 6, he that is not of God doesn't hear us. He won't hear, he won't listen, he won't believe. Jesus is actually the one who taught this to John. In John chapter 8, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders and he tells them in verses 43 and 47, why do you not understand my speech? It's even because you cannot hear my word. He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not because you are not of God. So John says in verse four, you are of God. You've overcome the false teachers by the spirit of God within you. They are of the world and the world hears them. Finally, verse six, we are of God. Now in fairness, I have to tell you, there are three ways to understand who John means when he says we there. Depending on what commentary or what study Bible you look at, you're going to get one of these three. That the we refers to himself only, that it's the, it would be called the royal we, and it's a very common way to write in the first century. That the we refers to himself and the other apostles in contrast to the false teachers. Or that the we refers to himself along with his readers which would be the way that we would most naturally understand this. But it seems to me that as he's writing verses 4, 5, and 6, if you look at them, this you, they, we, he's describing some distinct groups there. The progression of those terms suggests to me that the we in verse 6 is John and the other apostles in contrast to the false teachers. So follow me because this is going to be important. He's saying in verse 5 that they, the false teachers, are of the world and only the world hears them. But in verse 6, we, John and the apostles, are of God and those who know God hear us. But the false teachers don't know God and they won't hear the apostolic teaching about Jesus. They will not be corrected with what they're saying. Now, here's why this is important and how it fits today. Remember, we said earlier that to test the spirits, to be discerning of teachers, John said to evaluate what they say about Jesus in light of what John and the other apostles teach about Jesus. Now, John comes back around to the teaching of himself and the other apostles and says in verse 6 that hearing that teaching, that apostolic teaching, is the way to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How are you going to do that today? You realize John wrote this letter, but he didn't write it to you. He's not going to stand in front of you. How are you going to hear the apostles? How are you going to hear the apostolic teaching today? Well, my hope and prayer is that you're doing it right now. 
The Apostle John wrote this. And what are we trying to do this morning other than to hear what it is that the Apostle John has to say? We've dug into the text in context, wrestled with it in order to understand the the meaning intended by the Holy Spirit when he inspired John to write it. And so in the case of the pastor that I spoke about earlier, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't have evil motives in the things that he's saying. And I like the man, but there is an approach to scripture that I think is fundamentally flawed. When we open this letter, for example, our goal is to hear John and understand what he says, not to hear John and to imagine for ourselves other truths that we might envision go along with what John says. We open the word and we try to understand the spirit intended meaning of the text and we want to say and uphold everything that it says and not invent things that it doesn't say. To come to scripture any other way is to deny that this is in fact the complete revelation of God and that the spirit intended meaning of the text is sufficient for all our needs. So when a man comes and says, well, God gave me this message in a dream, we can immediately be discerning enough to respond, my brother, no. God gave us all a message in scripture. And this is where it's at and it's enough. And if he says things like, well, we need to pray for the salvation of Pontius Pilate, we can be discerning enough to say, there is no passage of scripture that shows that is the spirit intended meaning of the text. But to ultimately understand and apply this as it ought to be applied, you have to remember that John and Peter and Paul demand discernment in here because it's not just an out there problem. Will you be committed enough to Christ that you demand to hear the apostolic teaching in this pulpit and never settle for the ramblings and thoughts of some preacher or teacher who might stand up here. You do not get a pass when it comes to this this demand for discernment. You don't get to hand it off to someone else and say it's their responsibility because I know the very person that you would hand it off to is me and I'm the one that you need to watch out for. This is where you have to be most concerned. Don't just believe everything. Test every spirit. John demands that all believers practice spiritual discernment, identifying false teaching by examining how it compares to the truths about Jesus and how it parallels the the apostolic witness and whether it points to Jesus as the central theme of all truth. (laughs) Y'all, I know that that means you have to sit there and analyze every little word I say. Please do it. Be discerning. I, I, I don't trust myself nearly as much as you trust me. I could be the next one to go off the rails. And only a dedication to scripture and to point all things to Christ will keep us from doing it. 